morning, church. It's good to be with you again. After my unexpected extended absence, it feels like it was extended, uh, though I'm thankful that uh, it only was reflecting of two Lord's Days. Um, and so it is with uh, great joy that I'm with you here this morning to uh, be with you and minister to you the Word. So if you have your Bibles, please take them out to Ephesians chapter 1. This morning we're going to be covering the uh, first part of the second half of the first chapter of Ephesians 1. So uh, we're going to be looking at specifically verses 15 through 19, and we'll be only going to the first half of verse 19. So we got quite the fraction of a chapter and a passage before us this morning. Um, as we've been working through Ephesians, you uh, maybe help to be reminded that we're in that first part of Ephesians that is supposed to be um, uh, primarily doctrinal and Christological, and it is, and we and we are going to be seeing that this morning. But my prayer is also that as we work through uh, this passage this morning, we might find that it's also deeply enabling and practical to us in our Christian life. And so as we are addressing chapter 1 of Ephesians and we're looking at the exalted Christ and that specifically the heavenly witness of the exalted Christ in chapter 1, we don't lose our attention that that Paul's eyes are still in uh in many ways directed to heaven. And so we're going to see how uh, that plays out for us in this passage also. So follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15 through the first part of verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Let us uh, ask the Lord's help in prayer this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this word before us this morning. We thank you that it's been preserved for us these many years, that you have not left your church without a voice from you. I pray now that as we hear the preaching of your word, that you would work through this clay vessel to preach your word rightly, and that your spirit would work so that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We do ask these things for your glory alone and in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as again, we look to the first half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians and see that it is largely related to orthodoxy. 
we've, we've been drawing this conclusion and trying to pull this thread through this first half of Ephesians so that we would know that an accurate understanding of God in the life of a believer will lead to adoration and worship. As it said, orthodoxy will lead to orthopraxy, right? L thinking will lead to right living. And Paul certainly has this in his letter as he begins this letter with uh, mentioning himself as being apostle of Jesus Christ to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. And then as we covered in those three weeks, those three verses three through 14, that long ongoing sentence of Paul's expression of the Trinitarian operations in salvation. And he does this uh, with great intention, especially as he starts to unfold his purposes in verses 15 through 19 by way of showing his heart of prayer, his heart of love to the Ephesians that are founded upon these realities. That this is essentially the world in which Paul lives in and he wants to show with great beauty this world to the Ephesians as they live in it also, as they are united to the same Christ. For there is one head that's been given to the church and it is Christ Jesus. He will go on even to say at the end of chapter 1 that as he proclaims the glories of Christ, what has been bestowed upon Christ, at his victorious resurrection and ascension, that all things are going to be are put under his feet, that he's given as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and who fills all in all. Hopefully, uh, I'll do a, a fine job of expanding on that understanding what Paul was getting at that Christ fills all in all. But as he works his way towards that, he almost pauses in contemplation of his audience, of these Ephesians, of these people he's known well, labored with them for three years, sharing the gospel with them, teaching them uh, essentially uh, deep theology in that school of Tyrannus when they moved from uh, the synagogue to there, understanding their struggles against idolatry, against the pressures of the culture to conform to such a living that is in uh, disunity with Christ. And so he writes to them after some time has passed. And as some commentators have noted, he writes with ambiguity. He addresses nobody necessarily specifically, no specific problems as it, rate, as it relates to the church of Ephesus. And so the conclusion is, is that this letter may be a circular letter that was beginning in Ephesus and then worked its way around uh, that greater area. Uh, although that is, there is some reason to that and some logic. I, I would say that what holds here is a letter to the Ephesians written by one who is deeply connected. He doesn't write as he writes to the Romans, who he longs to see, to, to preach the gospel to them in person, to share in mutual encouragement. Here he writes with intimacy, though without uh, precision or without exact 
naming them and exact problems, he writes with a heart of knowledge that he knows these people. And now he's, he's labored among them for three years and now he's hearing of these people. Right? He, he labored with them and knew them by face to face and now he's hearing of them. And oh, what a blessing I'm sure it was that he was able to hear of their faith and not only their faith in Christ, but their love for each other. And it's not even, uh, the implication here is not just necessarily each other in Ephesus, but there's probably an implication that of all the saints in the area, all that have come into contact with them who named, have been named in Christ, have found the love of Christ residing in them. And so he's going to express this, as if you can see in your outlines, under three uh, under three descriptions. He's going to commend them. He commends them. And he's going to give thanks and he thanks. And then he's going to ask in his prayers specific things for them. Well, as I've been saying, he, he commends them in two ways. First, he commends them faith in their faith and that it's in the proper object. And he commends them that the results of their faith come in the proper outcome. The proper outflowing of faith is found among the Ephesians, or he hears of it to be found among the Ephesians. And as we hear who profess Christ would not be surprised to find out that as he hears of their faith in verse 15, I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus that they have the proper object of their faith. He doesn't write to them as he does the Corinthians, that some follow Paul and some follow Apollos and some follow Cephas and some follow Christ. He says, you have faith in Jesus Christ, the only proper object of our faith. And he's, he sets this up because he's, it's going to be the contention for them in their life in Christ is to contend against the flesh, the world, and the devil to see that Christ is maintained as the object of their faith. He will go on to give practical advice as to see that in their marriage and in their parenting, in in their vocation generally, as well as in their daily battle and struggle against sin, that they would see that they are in Christ, that their faith puts them in Christ so that there is no other proper object of their faith than the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is able to speak with some confidence here that he understands that their faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly there would have been true profession, But even to a greater assuredness for Paul is that he would see that it resulted in the proper outcome. That faith resulting in love. Faith resulting in love of the saints. He continues in verse 15. He says, I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. 
We don't have exactly what he heard of their love towards all the saints. In other epistles, he writes that uh, they had taken collections and cared for other Christians, and so they benevolently provided. There is other places where he speaks uh, words of correction about partiality, or God's word in James where he says, show no partiality, speaking to the rich and the poor. But here Paul writes to the Ephesians and he says, I've heard of your love for all the saints, for rich and for poor, for Jew and for Gentile. He's going to uh, reinforce that as he writes to them about the unity of the saints in the body of Christ. So this love and this faith is not perfect faith is the implication here. That they don't have perfect love for each other, that there is no room to grow. For Paul would possibly end his letter there. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. Grace be with you. No, they are real Christians. They're still struggling with how to live out their faith. What, what does it mean to love each other? How should we view one another in light of Christ when there seems to be these this ethical divide or ethnic divide between Jew and Gentile. They're to view each other in terms as Paul brings into these these natural analogies of body. There's one body of these heavenly realities of spirit for there is one spirit of these practical ecclesiologists ecclesiological realities that there is one baptism so that these believers in Ephesus would continue to put their faith in Christ and continue to love all the saints greater and on to greater realities to grow in their love to grow in their faith one commentator says faith and love are never disjoined but go hand in hand with each other. Faith without love is but a dead carcass. Love without faith is but a blind devotion. Neither is pleasing to God without the other. Let us try the truth of our faith by the presence or absence of love. This love is a spiritual sign that a man is is a disciple of Christ. For it says in John's Gospel in chapter 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, so also you must love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We don't love to be disciples of Christ, right? We love because we are disciples of Christ. Because the love of the Father resides in us, the Spirit indwells us, uniting us to the loved one, Christ himself. And so he commends them, but he doesn't commend them in, in a way that uh, crowns them as champions of the Christian world. You know, I think of, of sports. At the end of every sports season, somebody's crowned as a champion, and that's it. They're done. They reach the highest achievement. But we know that even in in the greatest champions, they're never satisfied even with achieving that trophy. But here there is no 
uh, a trophy for them to put upon the Ephesian church's mantle to say, hey, remember when Paul commended us? There it is. We're good. No, Paul commends them because he's also going to encourage them. And he does so by expressing to them that he gives thanks for them, remembering them in his prayer. So he thanks them with the eyes of faith and with a heart of prayer. Why do I say that he thanks them with the eyes of faith? In verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He, gives, he, he thanks them with eyes of faith because he looks not upon them and all their imperfections. He would not look upon them and say, hey, you guys... Uh, he first recognizes their faith and love. He doesn't first recognize their lack of faith and their lack of love. He sets out by seeing them with eyes of faith, by giving thanks for the good in others he knows to be imperfect. Paul indicates that with his eyes of faith, he sees them robed in Christ's righteousness. We give thanks for the fruit of the Spirit that we can see even when we know that it is yet to ripen. Does the farmer give thanks for the first kernel of corn long before the ear is full. So Paul looks upon these Ephesian Christians knowing what he's about to say or what he's writing in, in the fullness of chapter 2 where he's going to start with them being dead in their trespasses and sins, but trying to share with them that these immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ to show them that they are his workmanship created in Christ for good works. It's not that Paul, when he looks at them through the eyes of faith, ceases to encourage them, but he seeks to encourage them by commending what is there and commending that it would grow. Oftentimes, we look to encourage one another as brothers and sisters in Christ by what they're not doing as opposed to encourage what they are doing, what the Lord, where the Lord is working at. And then as with Paul to say, or with C.S. Lewis further up and further in, keep going, brother, keep going, sister. I commend you in this. For in this I see your faith in Christ. That we would... Praise the Lord for those first fruits, those young and immature fruits of the Christian life we see in each other. And that though we know that uh, the Lord is not done with them as the Lord is not done with us, we would see them as, as the Father sees them in Christ's righteousness. This doesn't exclude our command to confront one another in sin to admonish one another where they err. This certainly wouldn't say that we can only come to each other and, and say what's great about each other, but it certainly doesn't exclude it. We should confront one another in sin, but we should also commend one another where they are displaying their faith in Christ, showing their love for all the saints.
And Paul is a man who understands Scripture's teaching, the Spirit uh, inspiring Paul to write, expressing the sovereignty of God. And you would think a man so steeped in God's sovereignty, he would have no use for prayer, for God is working all things according to his good and perfect purposes. God is sovereign and his decree will never be changed. And yet Paul is writing to the Ephesians with the eyes of faith, but also with a heart of prayer. After a long running sentence in which Paul gloried in the reality that salvation is the work of God alone beginning to end. It is a wonder that this would turn Paul to prayer. It was, it's a wonder that God's sovereignty would turn Paul to then petition God to act after already saying God is acting and God will act. Well, it is a false understanding of God's sovereignty to say that if you understand God's sovereignty, then you have no need for things such as prayer and Bible reading and church and the preaching of the word, the sacraments, these means of grace. No, a real understanding of God's sovereignty drives us to pray. For we understand that in God's sovereignty, he is the only one who can answer those prayers. And it is only by an understanding of God's sovereignty that we are assured that God will act. For who can move God? Who can move God from not acting to acting? Not me, not you, not any prayer chain or any thing we think of that God is just waiting for enough leverage so that he can move on our behalf. No, but God working in us the righteousness of Christ what what can we look at in Christ's life and say you know there was something about Christ that we can say defined his life and it was prayer he was often found going off onto the mountain to pray to God he's found in the garden before he's tried and before he's crucified praying asking his disciples to pray with him he goes off to the wilderness for 40 days and is tempted and tried and he prays. So we should see in that the one who knew of God's sovereignty greater than any man knew. Prayed to the father. So we too should pray to God knowing that it is the means by which the Lord works. He uses means to accomplish his ends. Yes, the Lord is sovereign and he works sovereignly, but he also uses means. So we should pray, pray with the assurance that God will act. As we get down later on, we'll ask ourselves, what shall we pray? And we'll see what, what Paul prays for and have a, uh, an understanding of how we are to pray. But that we are to pray should be settled in our minds as it relates to God's sovereignty. James Boyce says in the first half of the chapter, in one long sentence running from verse 3 to verse 14, Paul praises God for the salvation of which he is both the author and accomplisher. 
God the Father chose. God the Son redeemed. God the Holy Spirit applied that salvation in a personal way. But then in the second half of the chapter, we have a prayer. The gist of this prayer is that God, who has planned and accomplished this salvation, might complete it as his people grow in knowledge of him. For Paul, the knowledge that God was working was an inducement to prayer, not an excuse for neglecting it. It was because God was at work that he could pray with confidence. Consider what he prays for. Consider what he asks. He asks of the Father through the Son according to the gift of the Spirit. First, he asks of the Father through the Son according to the gifts of the Spirit. And he asks that they, knowing God and his salvation, that they would know God and his salvation more and that they would walk more in works and the works prepared beforehand. He asks of the Father through the Son according to the gifts of the Spirit. He states that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, speaking of Christ in relation to him as a man, but he also says the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory, and His Father in reference to Him as God. He says, the Father of glory, that is, of Christ, who is His glory. Paul prays according to this understanding of the triunity of God. He prays this according to the understanding that Jesus is the God-man. So we do not despair at reading that it, that it says, he mentions them in his prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, and then he says, may give you the spirit of wisdom. So he's expressing to them again what he had, what he had really made this long drawn out statement about the Trinitarian operations in the life of Christians. And so he prays accordingly. He prays that God, the father of the God, man, the Lord Jesus Christ would do according to his spirit, what Christ has won for his people. What is it? That he is one, that they, knowing God and his salvation more, would walk in works prepared beforehand. He says that he prays for a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. One of the ways in which we are to pray and be assured that our prayers are answered is that we ask God what he has promised to give us. We ask God what he has promised to give us in Christ. For, for that way, we are assured to receive what, what we ask. If we ask what was not promised, that doesn't mean we don't ask what is not promised. Temporary things we ask often of health, of provision, of, of other types of mercies. We ask of these things, but we ask of them, leaving them to the Lord to do as he wills. But when we ask of things that God has promised to us, we may ask of him with the assurance that he will do it. James says, ask of wisdom. 
If you lack, anyone lacks wisdom, ask of it and it will be provided. This isn't some mystical revelation from God in wisdom, but this is that the Lord would apply the word of God in our lives. The spirit of wisdom and revelation is a term that would have piqued the years, especially of the Jewish Christians, but I'm sure of the Gentiles Christians, as they would have had the Old Testament scriptures to read. So turn with me to Isaiah 11, when we'll see what would have piqued their ears as it relates to a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In Isaiah chapter 11, we have this wonderful messianic prophecy where the word of the Lord says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What Paul is doing here is he's summarizing that second verse. He summarizes that second verse because he connects the, the first gift to the last gift. The spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He goes on to say, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see and decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. What we see here in Isaiah 11 as it relates to Ephesians chapter 1 is we see that Paul is praying according to God's word. He's asking that they would receive a, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. That they would grow in their faith. That would, they would grow in their love. And the means in which they would grow in their faith and love is that they would be given a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. In the knowledge of God. You see the connection between knowing God rightly, orthodoxy, and, and living rightly, orthopraxy, is already starting to build here in Paul's argument. The results of the coming of this shoot of Jesse we see in verses 6 through 9 in Isaiah 11. It says at the end in, in that section in verse 9, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Paul is praying for what the Lord has promised to accomplish through Christ. Another thing will result in the coming of this shoot of Jesse. Look at verses 11 through 16. I'll read just verses 11 and 16. 
In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Verse 16, and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people. And there, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. What will be the result of the coming of this shoot of Jesse is that God's people will come to Christ in a new and second and greater exodus. That which was typified in the exodus in the Old Testament is brought into anti-typical reality in the new exodus, whereby people come out of darkness, out of the bondage of sin, and into the light into the reception of Christ's righteousness so that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What is the right response of the people in light of this knowledge? What is going to be the marker of a people that see this, that experience this? Isaiah chapter 12 gives us this answer you will say in that day i will give thanks to you O lord for though you were angry with me your anger turned away that you might comfort me behold my god behold god is my salvation i will trust and will not be afraid for the lord god is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation Again in verse three, in verse four, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The only response of the people of God to the redemption of God is love towards God. Is greater love and worship towards God. And so greater love of our neighbors as we proclaim in love the deeds of God to all the peoples. But Paul makes an emphasis here on knowledge, in the knowledge of him. I found this really great statement, and I'll repeat it a couple times because it's probably easier to read than hear. But I believe it was uh, Thomas Adams in his commenting on this part of Ephesians. He says, you must know to do before you can do what you know. You must know to do before you can do what you know. Put it another way, he that attends only to exhortation and not to instruction, setting apart doing and knowing. He that only attends to exhortation and not to instruction seems to build more upon man's zeal than God's word. For God's word is the revelation of the knowledge of God and specifically the revelation of the knowledge 
of Jesus Christ our Lord. What is the knowledge that Paul is asking for? First, it is just that knowledge of God. The one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Paul is asking that they would understand more of the mysteries of who our God is. Who has he revealed himself to be in scripture? That we would wade into those deep waters. Becoming as the Lord wills, stronger and stronger swimmers in the ocean. The eternal ocean of the knowledge of God. But his first ask is that they would just know God. Knowledge of him. But secondly, he continues on in our passage. He's saying, having your eyes enlightened, or excuse me, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. What we see in that uh, verse, in those verses, is Paul's expression of what the knowledge of God does as we look at who God is and then a greater knowledge of his salvation wrought for us and in us. First, the, are these two things first are expressed as eyes, eyes of our hearts being enlightened. I remember uh, one commentator said, you can get to your destination seen but lame, but if blind and well, you may never reach it. He went on to say, because in the Christian life, there are many perils and bypaths. There are many ways in which those who are blind will fall off into those ditches. Those that have been given sight will see their peril and ask for help. Will seek out the love of the saints for them to bring them back out of, like a brand out of the fire. Paul uses this, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. We would not walk around groping, looking for things that we cannot find because we are blind and then we would know greater the knowledge of his salvation wrought for us and in us expressed in these wonderful terms what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Oh, I skipped a line. Who believe according to the working of his great might. We're going to have time to look at this more in the coming weeks. Because Paul's going to build upon this. He's going to talk to them about these immeasurable riches. About the, the greatness of his power toward us. So much that he's saying God is going to do more immeasurably more than we ask or think because Paul has an understanding first of the knowledge of God and secondly of the knowledge of his salvation wrought for us and in us and I believe we can take great encouragement from this prayer of Paul 
which is written for our instruction and growth. First, that as a body, we are sure of who our head is so that we understand what attribute the body should exude. That Christ be the object of our faith and no other substitute. We must be sure of who our head is. We must check ourselves in all of our decisions that are we making these decisions because Christ is the head and I am the body? Are these decisions reflective of, of, of us desiring to take that position? Certainly, Paul speaks of Christ as the head of the church. But if our eyes of our hearts are to be enlightened and we find our eyes in our minds and we know enlightening comes by the work of the Spirit, we may make a like comparison. Christ be the head of our own lives, our own body, so that we would zealously seek to keep Christ as the object of our faith. And so our love would be commendable by others, that our interactions with each other would be so defined by love that glory would be given to our Savior. That those that visit with us or come to know you as a person would know that you are a person who loves others. That we are a body of believers who love each other. One way this love should be expressed is through the commending of others we can be a body that provides spiritual support by commending others for the good we can see despite the growth that they still need one of the theologians that I was reading rightly says it takes no special skill to see what is wrong with people and to criticize them but to see people robed in a righteousness not their own and to encourage them on the basis to be more of what they should be powerfully communicates the heart of Christ. It takes no special skill to see what is wrong with people and to criticize them, but to see people robed in righteousness not their own and to encourage them on the basis to be more of what they should be powerfully communicates the heart of Christ. Second, as a body, we look to the means that the head has given us to grow in order to encourage one, each other towards our glorious end. The means that Paul uses here is the means of prayer. We are to be in prayer for one another regularly. I was very encouraged a few weeks ago as approached by Brother Chris who said, him and other brothers have been doing this habit of praying for each other every day throughout the week. He wanted to do it with me as long as I agreed to do it with him. We did it for a week. It was great encouragement to me. For I knew a brother was praying for me regularly and I believe he was encouraged to know the same. I'm encouraged that that happened without any program, without a, a prayer gram started by me or by uh, any church program that was done for our heart the heart of at least the men and I know you women pray for one another the heart to be in communion with one another in prayer so continue on in doing that expressing your love for each other through prayer that we utilize this means 
that costs us nothing. We need to go to a special place. We don't have to have special words. But we're able to commune with the one true and living God in prayer. And we're able to bring our petitions and the petitions of others before the Lord and know that we pray to a God who acts. We are to pray that we would know more of God and more of the wonders of his, of his salvation. And that through these prayers and through this knowledge, we would live differently now. Some critics charge that a concern for what is to come makes Christians a little of little earthly use. You're so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good. The opposite is the case. We know that we know what we are to become and therefore we live differently here. It is the citizens of heaven who make the greatest differences on earth. We seek not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So let us be a people with sure faith and a perfect savior loving each other in his love, lifting one another in prayer to the end of knowing God and living for him now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you so much more for the word became flesh and dwelt among us assumed our frailties took upon himself our iniquities that our transgressions were counted against him and not us we thank you for the spirit who illuminates the eyes of our hearts to this truth so that we would not just ascend to the knowledge of it, but that we would move to take hold by faith this truth. We thank you for sovereignly working in us that which you have promised to do. I pray that you would work in our hearts to come in prayer to you more, asking for what you have promised us so graciously in Christ, bringing the names of our fellow brothers and sisters to you so that we may grow in our love for one another, that glory may be given to the name of Christ to all those who we interact with. so that we may continue on in this until all your enemies are made a footstool and the last enemy to be defeated is death. We thank you, Lord, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.